Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Between the time when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of. And on to this. The 100th episode of Conspiranormal. It is I, his chronicler, who alone can tell thee of his saga. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. Yeah, we're in Nashville. That's right. <laughs> All right, everybody. Welcome to the Conspiranormal 100th episode extravaganza. Yay! We have an all-star Yay. cast. And we are going to introduce our people in here, our guests that we have. And, of course, we have the... Most wonderful co-host in the world, Mr. Luke. Yes, sir. With those Yay. profound statements. And producer Rob. Yo, yo. <laughs> is in the house as well. And we have a very special guest in the studio tonight. One that uh, comes from a city that begins with an A somewhere in the American South. And uh, really, really happy that this person has driven all the way out here to come and be a part of the Conspiranormal 100th episode. And that is none other than 
Mr. Infowars himself, Mr. Alex Jones. Yeah, I'm very glad to be here tonight. You know, the, the, the globalists actually tried to prevent me from being able to be here tonight. Let me tell you exactly what happened. What happened, Alex? I was boarding a plane out of Austin. That's the A-Town, but it's, it's known by other names. And I had my blueberry jelly with me. They wouldn't even let me on a plane with blueberry jelly. Okay? Blueberry jelly. They took my blueberry jelly. I asked them if they could take it downstairs and give it to the woman who'd helped me not miss the flight. Miss the flight anyway. And so I was sitting there in the actual grounding area in this airport. And I'm reporting for Infowars.com. 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 And there I was calling in, talking with Paul Joseph Watson about with a special report. Didn't have my jelly. Had to eat my toast dry by itself. Didn't even give me butter. Apparently it's liquid. You can't take that on a plane either. The globalists, they're out to get our liquids. They're out to get our dairy. They're out to get our fruit preserves. And next they're going to be taking fractal mantoids and sending them via metaprobes into your mind and stealing your brain, stealing your soul. Hey, can I ask Alex, are there any kind of pills... That, that you know of that can help my vitality and manhood. You know, I, 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 don't, I don't know what you're what you're getting at there, Doc. Doc Future, are you Doctor Future? Are you Doctor Future? I'd rather not be a. I could tell you about Tangy Tangerine though. <laughs> Just visit infowars.com forward slash store. No, I'm going to get in a lot of trouble eventually was for this like the Bilderbergs. <laughs> was this the Bilderbergs right. Well, I'm I'm actually a member of the Bilderbergs. Oh. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm actually a member of the Bilderbergs. And. Uh, yeah, I didn't. I didn't eat enough uh, sandpaper and didn't drink enough whiskey. Yes, in order yes. to be able to maintain that. To do it, to do it, to do as well. You have to drink a lot of whiskey. You got to drink a lot of whiskey. Everybody, yeah. everybody, give him a hand. Give him a hand for that. Yeah, <laughs> you could go on stage with that act. And I have numerous times. The for best real. one. Let me tell you, for the best real. one was uh, okay. I was at uh, the Paradigm Symposium last fall, and we had Graham Hancock there, right? And uh, and and I'm doing the Alex Jones impersonation during this like storytelling thing that we were doing, and I'm kind of thinking as I as I wriggle my way out of the straitjacket here, I, I remember thinking to myself, God, what does Graham Hancock think? Who he's probably sitting there, my God in heaven, who is this screaming idiot? <laughs> you know, uh, because I'm I'm up there, you know, going full full frontal Alex, you know. <laughs> so not many not many people can can be telling you that they've. Yeah, I'm sorry. That probably put a terrible image in your mind there. But uh, yeah, not many people can can you know have bragging rights to having impersonated Alex Jones at a fancy dinner with Graham Hancock <laughs> sitting you know four feet away from you. But uh, who is this blighty right here? Well, he knew who I was, but you know I think I think he saw a little bit of the real me at that point. So all right, conspiranormal. 100, baby. You guys are the latest yes. centenarians. Uh, what is it? Cent centenarians? Centenarians, right? Is that, is that the term? Something <laughs> yes, like that? Yes. You turned 100. Centenarians. Centenarians. Centenarians just in Nashville. Not Asheville, the A-town I'm from. But I'm glad to be here, guys. Yes, yes. Yeah, good to have you, dude. It's been super fun hanging out. It yeah, has absolutely. been. You've been here since yesterday, and yeah. it's, been, it's been great. It's been great having you. We yeah. went out last night. And been I, living after midnight. I listened and, to all yeah. the successes last night, and I'm just like, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> Wait, what successes? You know, multiple books, fam world-famous podcast. Well, but we're getting there. Though. No, that's right, debatable. We're yeah, we're, 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 we're approaching quick. We're getting there. You're, you're well, coming up. Yeah. Before we kind of bring you off for the full Micah Hanks experience, <laughs> let's go oh. over. 
We already got the full Alex Jones experience. Well, I want to go over the shows that you have been on, Micah. And we, you were one of the first guests that we had on. And actually, I have got uh, three of the first guests that we've ever had on in in this room. And that your first guest, the first show you were on was episode five. That was all the way back in June 2012. I believe we talked about Bigfoot and some other kinds of interesting stuff like that. Had you back on for episode 21. That was January 2013. That was the UFO Singularity when you released that book. Episode 37, September 2013. That was the Ghost Rockets show. We talked about that. Among other things, current events. Talked about the Paradise Symposium that year. Episode 53, that was uh, June of the next year, 2014. I titled this one, Strange Disappearances, Freaks in the Woods, and Donuts and Trees. Because you relayed this story about this woman that was being chased by these these, uh, hills have eyes type rednecks through the woods. But every now and again, she would find donuts put in trees. So you're saying this took place in Watertown. Yeah, probably. That's exactly what I'm saying. And just recently, back in August, we had you on uh, for episode eighty-nine. That was uh, the that was the one about interstellar midgetry, right? Yeah. Yes, that was the we talked about the podcast and we talked about conspiracy media, whether false flags are real. Those, what was going on with that? That was also the episode where Luke was uh, reading the um, the uh, catalog. That's uh, oh, it's right made a whole bunch of noise. Hey, no, <laughs> end it this way. No offense, Micah. It, it was a really interesting catalog. <laughs> like, yeah, I bet. Well, I'm, I'm going to take a look. We're going to find out just how interesting this was. Pro gear. Oh, Sweetwater. Right? Yeah. yeah. See, I order from these guys all the time. <laughs> Am I wrong? No, I? You, you're not wrong. As a matter of fact, yeah, I, I could go for one of these Zoom SG50G powerful and compact big power multi-effects processors myself. <laughs> Who won it? <laughs> yeah. So that or, a, that's a grand total. Yeah. One, two, three, four. Do we all have four. to read from a catalog tonight? Yeah. We, we might. We Take might. one down and pass it around. In, in a Shakespearean fashion. Uh, that gives you five shows that you have been on on the show. So I'm in the five-timers club. You're in the five-timers club, One, two, three, four, club, five. Sir. You're great. Wow. There's only one person in here that's in the six-timers oh. club. <laughs> Uh-oh. Congratulations. And that's you guys because you host the show. I mean, you've got to be here every week, right? So, Mike, yeah. I really what I want to kind of get into is what you've uh, you've been working on lately with Grayland Report, how everything is going, what some of the stuff that, that uh, or topics that have been interesting you lately. Well, so this gets a little complex, or as we've said a few times over the course of the last few days, this one might take us into the realm of meta. But, <clears throat> you know, for me, uh, philosophy is, is, is fundamental, I think, to, to really trying to understand uh, pretty much anything. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to join the, the ranks of my countrymen and remove the headphones here for a moment, like we did in the old days. Um, and what I mean by that is that it's, I think it's important to be able to evaluate through logic uh, what we're dealing with, uh, with with all things in what we perceive as reality. And remember, of course, the anthropocentric uh, nature of reality is perceived by humans. Um, you know, I, I came into this years ago kind of like you guys, interested in conspiracies, interested in, you know, current affairs and, and news and events and, and also unexplained phenomena. And you get to a point, I think, where you begin to look at, you know, all the pieces and, and you, you can choose. You can say, I'm going to go way down the rabbit hole and I'm going to, you know, speculate and I'm going to, you know, make... Uh, uh, you know, less informed decisions about things and make it interesting. Or you can really try and find the truth, which often is, is far less popular. But I think that, you know, in an effort to try and find the truth, you know, one has to use logic and reason, and one has to also attempt to be honest. And so really, I think, for me, to summarize it all, really, it's an effort toward honesty. Now, as far as actual projects, um, 
you, you mentioned some of the missing person cases, and we've talked right. about those a good bit in the past when we've uh, when we've gotten together before uh, on this podcast. Great to be here. What do you guys call this? This isn't exactly a bunker, but I mean it's 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 a man cave. Okay, uh, so the conspiratorial man cave, the man cave studio. Yeah, the transhuman cave. Okay, <laughs> we'll say yeah because we're we're moving ahead into the future ever steadily. Frightening though that may be, but the missing person reports and and, uh, and disappearances are pretty un- unusual. Um, one that I've long held an interest in was, of course, the pilot Frederick Valentich, 1978, who disappeared flying a Cessna 182L yep. over the Bass Strait. Um, and and what's interesting about that is it's best known as a UFO case because Valentich, right before he disappeared, had been in touch with. The, uh, the flight traffic or the ATC operators in Melbourne, and he was describing some sort of a greenly lit object that was moving around his plane. And I always tell people, well, we'll never probably be able to prove whether there was a UFO that he saw that night. What we can probably prove with some hope is what his intention had been, where he was going, why he was flying by himself, and why there were inconsistencies in the story that he told. And we can try to understand this as a missing person case. So rather than saying this is a UFO Case And a lot of people have over the years tried to say that this justifies the position that, quote-unquote, UFOs are abducting people. I say, you know, a pilot went missing. What can we try and make of this case? And and in trying to make sense of it, of course, I've gotten to know Valentich's girlfriend at the time of the disappearance, which had been uh, Rhonda Rushton. Um, We've become quite good friends, in fact, and I've had the pleasure of being able to communicate with her a lot and speak with her on Skype. And comparing notes, it's given me a very different perspective on that case, as well as missing person cases in general. And so to kind of summarize, some of the other cases I've taken interest in uh, or interest in recently have even included the the idea of the Hitler escaping the bunker hypothesis yeah. and getting down to Argentina. I've become fascinated with the myth and the mystery that people promote in relation to these disappearances and whether or not there's actually factual data that substantiates these things and how historically we can better try to analyze and understand whether there is substance behind these kind of myths and so that's really kind of where the focus of my own research has been over the last little bit in addition of course to you know uh, always working toward improving the art of the podcast you know with this new book the complete guide to maverick podcasting so you guys are kind of maverick podcasting here too yeah you know the transhuman cave it's quite impressive i mean this like uh, what what is it like? Hundred and fifty eight channel board over here that Rob's offering. Fifty nine. Oh, really? Did I miscount? Yeah, this is. Huh, yeah, this, this board is something else, man. It is. It is quite. Yeah, it's yeah. intimidating. It's it really, quite impressive. It yeah. really is. It really is. <laughs> well, what, what's some of the stuff that you're looking into with the the, the Hitler topic? Because that's something that really has interested me. Because we had uh, Gerard Williams on the show yeah. like uh, back last year, mm-hmm. and that was uh, for his book. Uh, well, I'm going to say it, Heather Gray Wolf. And uh, <laughs> it was uh, it was really interesting this idea that Hitler may have survived World War II and you know went to Argentina and wasn't uh, being shuttled around in UFOs around Antarctica and, right. or, or whatever. Well, kind of myths that come up. You mean Iron, Iron Sky wasn't true? <laughs> <laughs> it was. Only the problem is that it wasn't our moon. Hitler had his own secret moon, okay? Right. Yeah, right. a Death Star, a veritable Death Star. <laughs> and that, yeah, I'm sure somebody out there is getting really excited because they think I'm really being serious right now. <laughs> no, I knew it. I knew it all along. <laughs> the, the, the thing about the Hitler um, escape hypothesis, uh, you know, we've all heard the theories, okay, that at the at the end of... Well, at least Berlin and the Third Reich, as you know, the Russian troops are are you know 
encircling and, and moving ever closer to the bunker and, and, and what ultimately would uh, you know, be the last stand of Hitler and the Reich. Uh, our, our common knowledge of history, and I don't necessarily want to say that I dispute that. That's where I differ from some of these guys. I think that most often people are promoting the idea that Hitler did escape. I merely want to ask questions about the narrative, and there are plenty, and we'll go over that in a moment. But to, to identify the general attitude about this, what we're talking about is the notion that rather than having committed suicide in the bunker as the Russians were closing in on on the Fuhrer bunker there in Berlin, that he had actually managed to escape. Now, I'd always entertained that possibility, but looking at things historically, uh, when this program on History Channel, which is really kind of... Uh, you know, revived and even maybe even to an extent, uh, uh, you know, enlivened this debate to a, to an extent that it hasn't seen in, in in years. Hunting Hitler. Hunting Hitler is the yeah the program. My father had become a real popular or a real fan of it, and it's it's become very popular. That's really kind of reignited this whole debate, and so I decided, you know, let's look at the history and let's just see if there's, without going, you know with the same approach that Gerard Williams, Simon Dunstan, and others have taken in trying to examine, you know, the Argentina connection, I've said, let's look at the actual history and see if there's anything that we can use to justify that is, I guess, a springboard toward, okay, maybe something else happened here. So I began with the, uh, the original John Toland uh, autobiography from the early 19, or I'm sorry, the biography from the early 1970s, Adolf Hitler. Um, and, at the time it was published, and, and even still by many, it's considered you know the authoritative biography, although there are others about Hitler. And what's interesting is in the epilogue of that book, the final chapter, you know, again, just gives the, 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 the last few hours there in the bunker, uh, you know, the marriage of Hitler to Eva Braun, hence Eva Hitler, um, the suicide that occurred, uh, the bodies being carried up, uh, you know, and then the shelled out spot being burned, you know, the, 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 the fall of the Reich uh, and collapsing around Hitler himself. And What's interesting is that in the epilogue of that book, they note the fact that the Russian Third Shock Army, when they arrive, what apparently happens is they arrive and they believe that they had found the bodies of Hitler and Ava, the Goebbels family as well, which was Goebbels and his wife, and then, of course, their six children that they had you know, poisoned with cyanide. Right. And uh, what was to be carried out was that the, 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 the bunker and that, that area, that zone was to be turned over, I believe, to the Fifth Shock Army. And there were Smersh agents, the Russian spy agency, Death to Spies. You know, you'll read about that in some of the James Bond novels, too. They, they had not wanted to give over all of this at that time. So the shock, the, red, the third shock army and the Smersh agents loaded the bodies believed to belong to Hitler and the Goebbels family. Or the Hitlers, I should say, because Ava was there as well. They load these onto a truck and they carry them approximately an hour away to a location called Buke. And at that time, there was a you know a, a forensic examination of the bodies. They were all topsy. And the assistant to Hitler's dentist was among those who had examined, I believe, what was a, you know a jaw fragment and also a bridge that they said conclusively matched uh, X-rays of of Hitler's skull that had been made shortly after the assassination attempt that was featured in the film Valkyrie. You remember that, where the yeah. Wolfstein attack that occurred there. Right now. Supposedly there were five independent pathologists that, that reviewed this report. They confirmed it, and the Russians didn't release this right away, but they believed at that time that they had conclusively proved that Hitler had died and that they had his remains. But one of the interesting, and this is the first of the discrepancies that we find, one of the interesting things that is noted is that what was believed to be the body of Hitler within the mouth during the examination that was being carried out 
the pathology report had actually read that they had found shards of what was believed to be the cyanamide capsule. Whereas later it was revealed that the telegrapher there in the bunker and others had said that they had clearly heard the, the, the you know, sound of a, of a gunfire and that when they went in to retrieve the bodies of Hitler and Ava, she had used a cyanide capsule, but that Hitler had actually taken a gun and put it to his temple. Some of the reports actually read he'd put it in his mouth and he'd shot himself. So there was this conflicting report. This had caused some concern. Stalin had apparently been very concerned about this and the fact that the, again, those who were conducting the autopsy and the forensic examination of the bodies had said, well, there was cyanide capsule used and that was Hitler. They go back. This is the first time that the bodies are exhumed the following year, or I guess it may have been 1946. At this time, they determined that, yes, oh, actually, there is a bullet hole. And they allegedly sent the skull or a portion of it back to Stalin at that time, proving that there had been a bullet hole found. Now, I guess my first question would be, why did they miss that the first time? And second of all, why is this revealed only after they have said first, oh, yeah, and there was a cyanide capsule used? So the information didn't seem to quite gel. And it, I, at this point, now this is speculation, and I want to be very careful about this. But to be brief about this whole story... The question, the first question I have is, had Stalin begun to wonder about the narrative and whether the facts that were given about the body's initial examination matched the testimony given by those in the bunker? Did the Russian special police who exhumed the bodies and carried out the second examination, did they conclusively confirm something that they should have seen the first time, or did they send along information that was more in keeping with what Stalin had wanted to hear? Now, this is where things get interesting. We know in 2009, researchers with the University of Connecticut were offered a very short amount of time to examine the skull fragment kept in the Russian National Archives, which was determined, according to a DNA analysis, to belong to a woman between age 20 and 40. Mm. Which means to me that probably the skull fragment that was sent to Stalin had, in fact, not belonged to Hitler's body. I mean, that, that, that's very easily discerned. But if they, right. if they sent what they thought belongs to Hitler, and that also conflicted with the initial report about the findings with those bodies, which supposedly five pathologists had confirmed, this whole story seems to get stranger and stranger, especially when you consider that in 1970, before that zone was turned back over to East Germany. Uh, at that time, the bodies were exhumed yet again, carried off to a, a remote location, burned, and then the ashes scattered over a river. The concern, it was said, was that they had not wanted the Russian special police. They were very concerned about the West ever solving the mystery of Hitler. Of course, if the Russians had already solved that, why would they be concerned about what the West knew? You know, It seems very strange to me that all evidence of Hitler had been destroyed, although another justification had been that they didn't want him to be sort of deified, that his remains ever be uncovered, and that they put up a tribute to him. So it's, it's strange to me because although those may be logical reasons for the destruction of the body, with all the questions that precede that, it seems very strange that they were very careful to destroy it so that no further questions could be asked. We've got him. Case closed. End of story. Now, in the late right. 1960s, there was a Dr. Sonia of UCLA who also carried out an investigation where he compared photographs of the jaw fragment and that bridge that had believed, they believed had belonged to Hitler to the x-rays of the skull, and he made an independent analysis of his own that he said concluded without question that it had belonged to Hitler. But is it, it is interesting because it's believed that the photographs that had been included in the original Russian uh, report on this that showed the body of Hitler lying there, it, it's believed now that that actually was a body double. And this, of course, being in, due in part to the fact that you can see, of course, that, that that body lying there doesn't seem to have features that are consistent with a body that had been burned and doused with gasoline for three mm -hmm. hours 
as was the official narrative about Hitler's body and its demise. So there's enough dirt about this entire question, uh, situation, I think, to question the true series of events and, the, and, and indeed the final fate at very least of the remains of Hitler. I think we can say that much from our examination of just the official historical records. That's not getting into the fringe theory. What I think the problem is with the idea of the theory of him escaping to Argentina, which, by the way, Bauer, his pilot, had begged him to escape and to leave. He said, please go to Argentina, go to Japan, you know, go to the Middle East, you know, where, where they're sympathetic with your, you know, obviously your, your views of hatred, you know, toward the Jews. Yeah. It, it was believed that many had suggested and he had many opportunities to have escaped had he wanted to. Uh, and even in Toland's biography, some of the narrative about the escape to Argentina that involved U-boats, Vigo being one of the locations involved, you know, uh, you know, a liaison between uh, either Spain and the Canary Islands. There are some of the historical documents that maintain the quote-unquote proper historical perspective on all this, or what is alleged to be the proper historical perspective, that nonetheless point to a lot of those very same things that occur in the more conspiratorial narrative, i.e. that which says he may have escaped. Now, as we know, Simon Dunstan and Gerard Williams, who also is one of the participants on the program, Hunting Hitler, they're taking it and saying that he went all the way to Argentina. I would at least say this. Right now, while that is yet to be proven, we do know that Klaus Barbie, Adolf Eichmann, Josef Mengele, and many others escaped. Right. And they made their way to Argentina and other parts of South America. This there is where they went. Network that went down there. Klaus yep. Barbie had even been an informant to U.S. intelligence agencies until he was finally turned over, I think, in the 1980s. And so the thing yeah. is, is that many Nazis did escape. It's not, I think, an incredible stretch to presume that Hitler could have. And again, that may not be in keeping with the historical narrative, but even with the historical narrative, which is about as far as I'm taking it for now, yeah. for now, you know, there are enough questions, I think, that rise. And I'll say this just to conclude. When we're dealing with things in terms of science, and Dr. Mike knows this, you know, what we have to have is we have to have a kind of a consensus opinion. Among historians, the consensus opinion, the viewpoint is that Hitler died in the bunker. We have theories, uh, as proposed by the brilliant Peter Lavenda, that Hitler escaped to Indonesia. Some have said that there was actually a bunker uh, in Antarctica. Some have said that he escaped to, to Argentina. There are all these, these different theories in the fringe areas, and so I think what probably needs to happen in order to make this seem more plausible, or rather than just seeming plausible, in order to make it a plausible theory, is that there needs to be something akin to a consensus opinion about the final fate of Hitler among the fringe researchers just as well, rather than a variety of different opinions about what could have happened. So, But maybe we're getting closer to finding that. And if, if there ever is conclusive evidence that shows he got to Argentina, the, the great concern that arises from this, of course, is that you know the evilest man in history got away and lived out his life rather than having been punished for what he did. Right. It, it's interesting because in that podcast that we had Williams on, uh, I played, I uh, don't know if you got a chance to, to hear this, but... Uh, it was a recording from 1945 of the reporter named Thomas Caddy with the BBC. And he had gone into uh, the bunker with Soviet troops. I guess, you know, what we would later say is like being embedded into the, into the troops. That's a later kind of later, later term. Mm -hmm. But he reports that the general or the person that's in charge is telling him that what they found, and this goes over BBC airwaves, that what they found was a body double. And he said a bad one at that. Yeah, I did right. listen to that. Right. He, yeah, he said that it was considered a bad body double. And, that and then certain, later the story changes. See, the story seems to 
have continually changed. It's pretty obvious that there probably was a body double, and people might think that that's just absurd and conspiratorial stuff. But then again, hey, it's a conspiracy podcast, right? Right. But, I, yeah. but I'll say this, and this is important too. There have been numerous dictators throughout history who have employed a quote-unquote body double, and sometimes many of them. I believe Saddam Hussein had had a number Same. of body doubles, yep. you know. And so people might think that this is absurd, but no, what this is is this is cunning. This is intelligent misdirection, which any person in a position of power and the ability to do so in likelihood would do. Right. I, I, we've gotten to a point with skepticism, and this is important, because I don't think anything I've outlined here is fringe or crazy. I'm actually trying to deal specifically and solely with the historical facts, and I've still found problems with a lot of this. But I think the important thing to think about and my dad would take it a step further and say that how can we really say that, you know, photographic comparisons between the skull and the and the dental fragments, how does that actually prove that we're dealing with Hitler? We don't know that those couldn't have been fabricated also. Now that seems a little less likely in the minds of some, but it is at very least, however however, you know, unlikely it is a possibility. But I would say this, you know, again, the skull fragment in the National Archives was tested. The jaw fragments that the Russians still have, which are kept in a different department, have not been tested. There's not been DNA testing. And it's interesting to me, compelling perhaps to an extent that the Russians are so hesitant to allow those tests to be carried out. That would be one way with modern science. Forensic science would allow us to to know more than what we presently know. And it might even settle the question, so why aren't we making point. a move toward that? Right. And I think that's the the hundred million dollar question there on yeah. any of these kind of these these kind of events that happen and why people what particular interests there are that keep um, items like this covered up yeah are swept under the rug and and I will say you know because at the outset and then I don't want to ramble all night we've got fine people brilliant people here in this room and of course we've got a lot of celebration to do but I will say this that you know when you ask what I'm doing this is one reason why you know as an amateur historian I guess at very best. Uh, I, I, but, but more, more so, I think an investigative writer and and and, and a researcher. Uh, I've become so fascinated with the idea, and with also our cultural fascination with disappearances and missing persons, because often when when there is a mystery involving a person disappearing, or or with you know Hitler, his possible escape. Uh, you know, with someone like Frederick Valentich, you know, the possibility that there was some unidentified flying object that had something to do with this, with the Dennis Lloyd Martin case, which has been featured numerous times yep. on your program, you know, the idea that there could have been a kidnapping that involved that rough-looking, dark-figured man seen down at Rowan's Creek by the, the Harold Key family. Right you know, these, the, right here, I mean, not far from where we are here, yep. you know, these mysterious components do often lead to what I think is, at times, maybe unwieldy speculation. But that doesn't mean that there isn't the possibility that there is more to these cases or maybe that there isn't information that forthcoming sometimes decades after the fact might not help us solve these cases. And so for me, I think there's a bit of a detective component to this too. Uh, again, I'm in good company because you know I'm sitting right across from Dr. Mike Bennett, who I believe has really cracked the code of the entire uh, uh, the, the Elberton mystery yeah. with the Georgia Guidestones. I mean, right. I, if we really do our work and our legwork and our detective work as researchers and historians, we can get to the bottom of a lot of these cases. And so that to me, I think is why this has become, you know, a preeminent focus of my own as a researcher. And, and, and the final thing too, is that, you know, we can't be so skeptical that we are unopen to the possibility that our ideas about these cases with all the gaps that need to be filled that these cases that they don't justify further study 
because there are many instances where we find that people who have been sentenced to decades in prison are found innocent later with advances in, in, in knowledge, science, technology. And it very well may be the case one day that we'll know that, for instance, Hitler had escaped or, you know, who knows what else. We may find a conclusive lead in the, you know, decades old now disappearance of Dennis Lloyd Martin. A lot of these cases warrant further inquiry. When we become so skeptical that we close our minds and say there's nothing more that can be done, that's when we place a limitation on thought. Right. Let's introduce the other guests here that we have. And I'm going to start over here with Joe Dabari. Joe, you got a mic? <laughs> yeah. Hey, guys. I'm here. I'm just uh, observing. Well, let's go. Let's go over the, uh, the list here of the shows that you have been on. And you were actually the second guest on the show ever. That was episode three back in April 2012. That was kind of a the second interesting show. show. Episode three. The second, well, the, the, se <laughs> the second guest was episode oh, three, okay. actually. But uh, and then episode thirty-one, I we I'd had you another on. Mystery. <laughs> <laughs> we had you on in June twenty thirteen, and that was uh, you talking about a show that you were doing on YouTube called Paranormal Battle. Uh, episode fifty was uh, well, there are three people that are here from episode fifty, actually four. Uh, that was the round table. Uh, episode 60, you were on with the uh, Tennessee Ray Chasers. We talked about the show Ghost Asylum. Uh, episode 94, that was October 2015, and uh, you sat in on the uh, Scott Walter show that we did. So, yeah, it, it was fun. So we're gonna we're gonna go around here, and we also have Mr. Robert Hyde. Hello, sir. Hello, sir. It's good to see you. Good to uh, be here. Good to, that you came all the way down here from Louisville. Yeah. Robert is a veteran <laughs> above both Future Quake and Conspiranormal. Yeah, how many times How many times have I been on your show? Man? Well, okay. Well, you've been on here four times. That would have been episode 19 was the first show. That was December 2012. I called that a Christian Libertarian's response to conspiracies. Episode 42, that was January 2014. That was a Christian's Libertarian's view on the supernatural. Episode 50, again, that was our episode 50 roundtable. And episode 79, that was May of 2015. And you were kind of like my co-host on that one. With uh, We talked to Dr. John Ward. I remember. On that, mm -hmm. yes. And Dr. John Ward. Dr. Ward, <laughs> yes. Could you please get my tea and my crumpets? <clears throat> and last but not least... We have the great Dr. Future. That's right. The uh, first ever Now you're sounding like Mrs. Normal. Future. <laughs> <laughs> trying, to, trying to butter you up there. <laughs> you're on episode two in April 2012. <clears throat> episode 35, August 2013. That was uh, Sorcery and Last Day Spirit Portal is okay. what I call that one. Episode 50 Roundtable again. Uh, episode 72, that was March of this year. That was about Jewish ritual magic. Yeah. Episode 85, that was in July. And we talked about the Georgia Guidestones, the revelations on the uh, the film Dark Clouds over Ableton. Uh, episode 99, December of this year. That was just about a, a, barely a week ago. That was you co-hosted yeah. with me with the Rebecca Ross show. Yeah. So wow. that How was a was grand that? total of six times. Did you include 50 in there? Was that? Yes, 50 is in there. Yes. Hey, can I add two things on the the post-World War II Nazis and Hitler? Sure. There's two other data sources that weren't mentioned in there. We're not going to make this like the History Channel. It's going to be the History Channel, right? Well, I just wanted to mention the uh, 
probably the, the most convincing data was from the 1970 movie Flesh Feast. Uh, <laughs> Lake involves maggots. And uh, more importantly, was a was the first feature-length movie I produced called Nightmare on Neptune with the gentleman to my right who actually had a starring role in that. Yes. And it actually traced the uh, Nazis in a runaway V2 rocket to the planet of Neptune, which had actually rebuilt their atomic nuclear program and were getting ready to reattack Earth before... Filmed on VHS, by the way. See, Luke, that's Hitler's secret moon. And here this whole time we thought it was a planet. And that was disclosed back in the mid-80s. So I just wanted to help the discerning listener. We also have two other guests inside the studio tonight. We have... Heather Walker Cecil, which you need to turn your mic toward you, by the way. Uh, Hi. <laughs> say hello, Heather. Hello, Heather. I guess we really have technically three guests because we have a uh, little Walker Cecil on, on the way. Yeah, we, we won't put his name on the air, but yes. <laughs> um, <clears throat> feature, featuring next week sometime at yeah. some point. We're not, we thought it would be cool to have a live birth, though, maybe on, the, on, the conspiratorial on a very special episode. edition of Conspiratorial. <laughs> yes. Alyssa's going like to act as a midwife. <laughs> <laughs> as we get the middle finger right now. <laughs> Right, exactly. <laughs> and... <laughs> Lurking in the background, we have Mr. Jeff Heim of the Leisure hello, hello. Podcast. Hello, babes. The other, the the the, the our sister show yes. that Rob uh, produces produces. And the dumbest man in here. <laughs> I don't know no, about that, that. No, 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 no. I just want to <laughs> wait. I do. <laughs> I kind of lost my voice, but I do want to add to the World War II thing. Yeah, Hitler was bad. Yeah. Okay. Yes. He was a bad, bad, bad man. That's a provocative <laughs> statement. <laughs> I'm offended. Don't, That's all I got. Don't try to take my role away on this podcast, okay? That's all I have left. <laughs> well, you got your liquor, too. Well, yeah, exactly. You got your liquor. <laughs> well, my show is about, like, drinking and cracking fart jokes. And you guys are, like, writing books and stuff like that. I don't know. got nothing. You could write a book about fart jokes. <laughs> I've, I've seen those things. My brother did, and it's one of the funniest books. books I've ever read. <laughs> <laughs> it was also like 10 pages, so I actually made it through it. So. <laughs> it's more of like a pamphlet, though. Let's just be honest, you know. It's not even a catalog. Where did that catalog go? There's got to be a fart joke in there somewhere, right? Dr. Future, uh, yeah. I want to bring you on here because I'm sure a lot of people know you. A lot of people... Are aware that you are currently writing your um, one hundred volume right. epic book series, right? Um, and wouldn't know where everybody where you where you where you're at with it, and what you're kind of like looking into now. Almost exactly where I was last week when I was asked. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm a little over two thirds of the way through the next to last volume. I've just passed like five hundred sixteen pages. So the history ones are long ones, so they're both going to be over 700 pages. So, yeah. History of Holy Wars. It's called, uh, the series is called The Holy War Chronicles, Spiritual View of the War on Terror. And it covers the big issue of our age from every different angle. Each volume handles a different facet of the war between the rest of the Middle East. Uh, why we perceive the Middle East the way we do, why they perceive us the way they do, 
who controls the information that dictates those perceptions, um, the history of people fighting each other over religion, uh, who are some of the culprits right now, and some of the associations and activities that we don't know about, that with a little bit of research, things start to clarify a little bit, and then hopefully end with some positive solutions on a way other than by violence and death to resolve issues. Well, that's it in a nutshell. Sounds good. Yep. Uh, and oh, there's something there to offend everybody, just like right, the future Right, show. right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> what, what I really um, want to get your opinion on is everything that's going on now with the anti-Muslim sentiment in the United States. Uh, Robert, feel free to hop in on this yeah. as well. Micah, too. Uh, you... you you know, especially when we have a certain candidate that's out there that's been making a lot of noise about uh, restricting Muslim immigration. You see a lot of, I guess, to say animosity towards them. And especially after the San Bernardino shooting and the uh, other events that have taken place. Uh, where are we with with that at this moment where where do you think that that is going to go with this 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 anti-muslim sentiment is it going to be used as a way to further certain agendas well g given that i have about an hour's worth of commentary other, every day to dump on either you or mr hyatt here to the right, right. it i have a little bit of keyboard lockup to know where to start with that because I've written close to 3,000 pages of manuscript trying to answer that question you asked me. I assume you don't want no. me to go through all of that right now. Well, uh, specifically, but, the re specifically the refugee issue. That may well, be a good way to kind of narrow well, it down. Let, let me, just to be fair to Mr. Trump, who you're referring to about um, his comments about Muslim people, he has been, to his credit, very equal opportunity. He has made fun of people with cerebral palsy and... Uh, <laughs> oh, um, you know, uh, veterans, POWs. And so he's been able to show the shortcomings of POWs and that they're losers because they got caught. So Mr. Trump's been very fair in that regard. Um, and also women, too, you know, and about uh, things about them that make them not be able to think clearly about things. So he's been uh, equal opportunity uh, in that regard. So it's not shocking that a guy like Mr. Trump w would also uh, target any kind of um, minority or disenfranchised people group for opportunity's sake because there's an old tradition on that and that's one thing about studying history, particularly religious history uh, as a person who, who I'm a person of faith uh, I'm, I care about spirituality, I care about spiritual things and the supernatural and so because of that it matters to me and it particularly matters what people do who represent closely what I believe in the name of what I believe. And when I look at the track record of that, everything I see about the Muslim situation has been repeated over and over and over again, over even over. in our own community. In our nearby town of Murfreesboro, mm -hmm. uh, just outside of Nashville, which has been basically ground zero in this country for the battle over whether people can put mosques up or Islamic centers or things. They have flown in experts from all over the country to fight it. And you do a little digging, you find out that that town, back in the 1920s, also had marches 
about people of a foreign faith that were coming in and were going to take over our country, and that was the Catholic faith, that the Catholics were moving in and they were going to take over our nation. Uh, the Jews also have been blamed for that as well, too. And in fact, right. any kind of group that might have any kind of numbers that can influence the dialogue or discourse uh, immediately are held suspect, and demagogues will find a way to make a dollar off of it. And it's just like the situation with war in general. That's why you never hear about peace profiteers. There's not money in peacemaking. There is a lot of money in war making and in animosity and confrontation. And sadly, as much as Americans pat themselves on the back for how, how much they're the home of the brave, they are seems to be some of the scaredest people I have ever seen. And particularly the people of faith from my Christian background are some of the most timid, uh, uh, frightful, paranoid people that I have ever seen. And, um, you know, I mentioned earlier, and I hope this doesn't get too religious-y for some people, but people who know that they're raised in church, they, there's talk about Jesus saying, you know, if you gave a cup of water uh, to the poor person or to the least of these, it's like you gave it to me. And one day in judgment, it says, when for the people who didn't do that to the least of those or the stranger, he says, you denied it to me. And I don't think people of faith realize when they take such a ugly, hard line toward people who are desperate. And, you know, there might be a few bad people in their midst. I'm not going to be naive and say that they're not. There might be some, I mean, me planted in there. But when they turn away to hundreds of thousands of these people who are desperate for their families to find food to eat, one day they may find, if there is a hereafter, that they're going to be held accountable for that to someone whose face they were looking at when they turned them away. And that could be said, too, for the ones that turned the boats of Jews away at the advent of World War II. It wouldn't take in people from Central Europe. And there's a long list of people like that. And so that's what really concerns to me is, is you know, words like fascism are thrown out a lot. Right. But when I see some of the recent political rallies that are going on right now, <laughs> it looks like there's a lot of flirting going on right, right now with that. And if anybody studied uh, the late 20s, early 30s in Nazi Germany, you can't help but see a few parallels. Oh, yeah. And um, yeah, we were talking about that at lunch today, and you were, you were talking about the rally, Trump's rally. And it, it's so easy to, to do this. Uh, I believe that, Heather, I remember you saying that there was a term for this where you make your enemy, make all your enemies Hitler. <laughs> oh, <laughs> a certain internet rule. But. Uh, you, you, you know, so it's, it's, it's so I, easy to do that, but you know, you were talking about how that that there were these young protesters that were just that came into the rally today, and yeah. they started mm -hmm. to um, protest, and then they were they were immediately thrown out, pretty much on their butts, and well, they were hauled out by their ankles. Right. Yeah, and, and, and and it reminded me of things that I have seen footage going back to Hitler again. Yeah. Things that I've seen the footage uh, are, and things that I have read about how there would be protests at these rallies. This is before Hitler came to power in Germany and they would, there would be these protesters and it was the exact same thing. The SA stormtroopers would, would bring them out to the street and they'd yeah. haul them out of the, the hall and they would beat the, beat the living shit out of them. Yeah. And it was, it was the same terror. thing basically. <clears throat> it and so terror. it's like beginning to remind me a little bit too much of what happened at that point. Well, you know, we just had Jerry Falwell Jr., the president of Liberty university mm -hmm. come out 
and say that all of the students at this Christian university to teach the ways of Jesus should all get a concealed carry permit and start bringing weapons on campus. And he was bragging about how macho he was. And he says, y'all want to see my gun back here? Oh, I better not pull out. He said, he says, I want, I want us to all have these guns. So, and I'm paraphrasing here. He says, so we can uh, drop these Muslims before they ever set foot here. Right. He says, we'll take these Muslims out before they set foot. Right. And, and I'm thinking, this is one of the flagship universities to raising tomorrow's leaders in the Christian church that I'm a part of. And that I'm feeling uh, increasingly estranged from, not from Jesus, not from the gospel, but from this kind of behavior, mm-hmm. and what I consider outright corruption that's ongoing. And another factor on, on this whole thing going on beyond what it's doing to the heart and soul of Americans is the fact that our lack of knowledge that this was not this threat wasn't invented on 2001, and there have been activities going on since significant for at least a century prior to that. And and I begin my book series with a discussion about the role of Western intelligence, and particularly British intelligence, in really taking on the Muslim Brotherhood and establishing the Muslim Brotherhood as a radical Islamic counter uh, counterweight to the secular anti-colonial independence movements in the Middle East, where, where, the, where the nations of the Middle East were... were wanting to be free and to stop that movement their establishment of radical islam all the way back in the teens and 20s to stop this with the muslim brotherhood behind the american support of the wahhabis to keep the house of saud in power in in saudi arabia the even israel's admission from their leaders their admission in print of their founding of hamas and establishing hamas to counteract the secular independence movement of the PLO, and you begin to think we're in the middle of a great big con game, and we're we're dupes. And something I'm not saying there's not real threats. I'm not saying real people don't get killed, that have to be addressed. But it's one thing to acknowledge that the stakes are gotten high and things are getting serious. It's another thing to figure out who really should be held responsible. Right. And you can go address the drug problem by grabbing low-level junkies off the street corner all day. But you're, you're not going to solve the drug problem until you go after the French connection, until you go after the kingpins. And right now, very few people, if any, are talking about the kingpins behind all of this. Well, one thing that I want to say that we've covered on this show, uh, good case in point of what I'm going to get to here, too, is there was a story that came out of Las Vegas in the last few days of these, this group of, I would guess you would say evangelical Christians for lack of a better term would go into these Catholic churches and they would scream that, you know, you're, you're sinners. You, you shouldn't follow Mary and all these kind of, kind of anti-Catholic biases. Okay. And, Apparently, the what the but the but what the media hopped on was this idea that they were a lot of them were converted Muslims. Mm-hmm. So it's like they still inserted the word Muslim into the yeah. conversation, even though it had absolutely nothing to do with Muslims in any way, other than these people used to be Muslim, which is 
really beside the point. But it's like, for one way, it keeps that word still right. there in the ether, so to speak. The word association. The word association. But where I'm going with that is, is that we've talked a lot about the, this whole year has been one, it has been one event after another. Chattanooga, um, what just happened in San Bernardino, uh, Lafayette, Louisiana. Uh, we even had weird little almost shooting event here in Nashville at a movie theater, you know, but it has been this whole year and each time I see it doesn't matter from where they come from, whether they're Muslim, whether they're Christian, whether they're atheist, whatever they are, when they have the true belief system and their ideologues are their fundamentalists, they are taking these extreme actions, but nobody's is really harp harping on that. They're harping on the fact that, this one group is doing it more than this other group. Right, it's all like 400 million of them or however many are. Right, are. right. Uh, this uh, this um, Planned Parenthood shooting oh, in Colorado that just occurred not too long ago, uh, which basically San Bernardino knocked off the news, you know, there was this, was he or was he not a, a, a fundamentalist or was he just some crazy person? Well, apparently he said baby parts. No more baby parts, you know. This is someone that obviously has a fundamentalist viewpoint and is as an extremist viewpoint. So and probably also a major mental illness on top and, of it. On top of it, and the same thing with the Chattanooga with with the guy who shot the the uh, naval officers in Chattanooga. You know, he had some bipolar issues. Mm -hmm. Um, he had come from a family that uh, really put the pressure on him to get a good career. He gets this DUI. He gets uh, sees it doesn't think that he's going to fulfill that career to become an engineer. So he becomes basically radicalized and decides to go out in a blaze of glory. Okay, right. so it's you know it's mental issues combined with what gives them hope more than anything else, which is religion or some kind of political uh, stance and they just go commit these deeds. But in our culture and in our uh, media, it's usually focused on to be, to be, to be Muslims. Well, and the more, the more segregation our world or our society has, the more you're going to get extremist views on either side and you're going to get more mm -hmm. hatred and you're going to get more violence. And that's just how it's going to work. And if we keep perpetuating it, it's just going to get worse. And, and I'm wondering, too, you know, we, we were just talking. Everybody's people. Everyone will hear this after the fact, after this. But we were just talking to Rocky. And he was talking about how. And I think Micah chimed in on this, too, that everything on Facebook seems to be simplistic. Mm -hmm. It's either black or white. It's either us or them. Uh, and that's the kind of mentality because, and Mike, you said, too, you know, nobody's going to read a book. It's all like 20, yeah. if it's beyond 20 seconds or so two many minutes, characters. Yeah. So forward. many characters. Now you right. understand which political candidates rise to the top. It becomes <laughs> yeah. very clear why. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, an answer like it depends to a difficult question is not satisfactory to people. Mm -hmm. Right. Or, or there's a lot to that question. Well, that, that does not, you know, it's not adequate to it. Right. You know, there was an article I, I cited on my blog 
that of all things was from that crazy magazine, Cracked Magazine. You know, it was like sort of the low-rent mad mm-hmm. magazine. Mm-hmm. And they talked about understanding the terrorist mind better. And they made an important point about the real alignment is is team violence and team nonviolence. And those who may even say they're on opposite poles religiously or other ideologies, when they choose violence as an option, they really are sort of married together. They need to have that back and forth of violence. And the people who stand in the way of their activity, of their, quote, heroics, are the people who want them to knock it off. And the people who want them to knock it off include a few Christians, some atheists, some uh, obviously Jews, some Muslims, and some Hindus, and a whole mess of other people. And what they have in common is wanting to raise their children, wanting to try to understand God better through the ways they know how, and to, for people to leave people alone. So we have to recognize that realignment. And what's most painful is if, if you take your religion ideology seriously, is to find people in your own camp that are part of team violence. And that you maybe once felt close to them at one time, and now you recognize you can't be close to them anymore. And that you, in turn, you're going to be misunderstood for asking questions. Robert, let's get you in on here. All right. Because I know you have similar ideas to Dr. Uh-huh. Future and have influenced those, his ideas somewhat. You guys cross, cross-pollinate, I would suppose, uh-huh. on your ideas. Um, so ask me a question. Well, it's basically <laughs> the same question that went to Dr. Future. I mean, from what he has, from what he's talked about and, you know, how you feel about this, like the current political climate that we're in, you know, what the possibility, where we're going with all this madness that's happening in the world. Mm-hmm. Well, I certainly share a lot of Dr. Future's thoughts on that subject, but I'll just tell you where I have come from. I... I grew up in a in a good Christian um, fundamentalist household. Very very good people. Uh, not perfect by any means, but but pretty good. And I've long felt a little bit at odds with my own church. Yeah. Malou. Um, because there were some things that I would find in reading the Bible that other people seem not to find. Um, and and one of those one of those things was um, blessed are the peacemakers and and uh, and, and definitely a, a nonviolent approach which our Lord gives really clearly in the Sermon on the Mount and other places. But a, but a, a equally important thing to me was the centrality of freedom, personal freedom versus control, okay? I, it's not my business to control other people at all if, if I can possibly avoid it. Yeah. And it and it's not their business to try to control me, and I really believe that personal freedom and personal liberty is somehow of great value in the mind of God. That's that's what I believe, and that's why when I've 
introduce myself, I've been willing to call myself a Christian libertarian. Uh, it's not because I believe in all the tenets of what's called libertarianism, but somebody has to use the right word and, and say, I, I really believe that personal liberty is, is an important part of the human condition. It, it, it should be. And, and Christianity, properly understood, is in favor of that. In contrast to which, I see a lot of nice church folks that are really into control games. And over the course of the last 10 years, I've really been trying to dig this out and say, what is going on? When 9-11 hit, I knew something strange had happened. I knew somehow that psychologically, um, America had kind of turned a little bit of a corner. I'm not going to say it was 90 degrees, but something something had gone ugly yeah. and over the course of the, of the next few years I, I began to really get concerned about where this was going so that's my background but what I'm really interested in is what what we can do with liberty and what we can do with a peaceful approach toward other people and why it's valuable and why it's worth advocating in a friendly way. And that is uh, what I'm finding interesting in terms of consciousness. I am very interested in the whole question of consciousness. And I mean that in the broadest sense of the word. Uh, um, I'm, I'm interested in how humans think that agree with me. I'm interested in how humans think that don't agree with me. I'm interested in how God thinks. I'm interested in how angels think. I'm interested in how plants think. I'm interested in how animals think. I'm <laughs> interested in the whole thing. Okay? And I'm, I'm, I'm interested in listening to and talking to anybody who is pushing in these frontiers of curiosity. And, and I find that there are a lot of people that are. I mean, really, you know, um, really qualified people. Some of them are credentialed. Some of them are just qualified because they've spent a lot of time studying that. Uh, and in... And in contrast with that, I see the, the mindset and the motivations of most people is directly opposed to that. They do not want to explore. They do not want to ask an interesting question. They're afraid of learning something like you're going to learn something really bad, <laughs> you know. If, if you ask, and and the fact is, no, the situation here is bad. But real good chance I'm going to learn something good, <laughs> you know. Uh, so that's a that's a general statement of where I've been coming from for a while. So far away on that. What do you? Well, I kind of agree with you more. I mean, if we're not here to learn and grow, then yeah, what's the point of anything? I mean, I'm not going to... Anyone who assumes that you've experienced all there is to experience in a tiny handful of years, 
just... Well, one of the things that has interested me is when, when you study something like conspiracy theory is you have some really good people who are, are seeing anomalies and they're trying to figure out what went on. And they always have the difficulty that information is withheld, it's not available, you're having to approach it piecemeal, you're not getting paid for it. Right. You know, all of that, it, it's the work of amateurs uh, and they can be wrong in their conclusions, in, in, including very wrong. But I say they are right. They are very right to want to know. They, they want to see where the truth leads or what's really going on. They right. want to look behind the curtain and see who's there. And I personally appreciate that. And Absolutely. And, you, uh, you need people out there scouring every square inch, whether they're finding right. crazy right. conclusions or not. But at least they're... They're searching and doing the checks that, that you know need right. to happen. And, and then the yeah. other half of your title, you know, the paranormal is fascinating to me because I've lived long enough to have had a few experiences myself, and I, I have a wide circle of friends who've had experiences more interesting than my own, and I know it doesn't fit with the standard paradigm. And right. so I'm going once again, I'm, I'm on the I'm on the side of the people who are curious, who want to know how the world really is put together. How how do we think? Yeah. You know, uh, so. I, I can tell you on that point that from partly from doing this show with the 100 episodes now that uh, and listening to other people's shows, most some of those people are in this room that I'm constantly learning new things and new ideas and new ways of looking at issues. And I would say even over the course of doing this show that most of my point of view has, except for some very basic things, have, has, have really evolved as I've heard some different, different ideas. Mm -hmm. So, well, by the way, while you're on that topic of this show, which is, yeah. I guess, while we're here, Right. to think about the insights of 100 shows and, and considerable time. Uh, it is so critically important that shows like this exist and as many as possible. Right. And that people would listen to something like this rather than the orchestrated drivel that they find in mainstream media. <laughs> they can either... It's, it boils down to this. They can listen to a handful of billionaires who start these networks on TV and radio that hire these people to espouse their views and their opinion, even by the, by the choices of what stations or shows or stories to run and what not to run, and to listen to their hand-picked, quote, experts tell us what news means. Or you can listen to your fellow citizens who do not receive deep-pocketed money and who are just as inquisitive as they are and are looking for answers. And if there's a lot of shows, there may be a few shows that air a little bit on the one side and a little bit on the other, but through a plurality, you might have your best shot of finding out what really what the heck's going on. But I can tell you, if you listen to mainstream media shows, it's just like shooting yourself in the foot. It's like you're, you're just leading <laughs> yourself to be misled willingly 
for a commercial for some billionaire. And you know, it came out. We were talking about earlier, uh, earlier show about the 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 threat of mental health and its crisis in America affecting everything else. It just came out that a few days ago, something that shouldn't be a surprise to anybody, the top 20 richest people in America have more money and assets than the bottom half of entire America. It's frightening. The bottom 150 plus million people have less assets than 20 individuals in America. Yeah. Uh, the the gulf between rich and poor there are, keeps getting wider and wider. There are six mega corporations that control almost every radio station, television station, major media outlet. You have a handful of it's like a plutocracy. You have a handful of people dictating our reality to all the rest of us. And if we don't take the energy and the time to take a break from the movies and sports to do a show like this then we're just asking for our subjugation. We're just we're just too lazy to deserve freedom. Right. Think about this. You know, here we are, people who most of us have known each other for more than a few years at the most and maybe just a few months or days. This is not the first time people like us have gotten together and had conversations. You've probably sat around in meetings and visits like this a couple of dozen times in your life. Maybe. You're lucky. Okay? <laughs> you know, there are a lot of people that are still waiting to have their first or second conversation that we're having here where it's just friendly people running ideas past each other, pooling their viewpoints and, and moving forward, and, which is why a show like this is so important right. in my view. You know, we were talking, I was been talking to Micah about it, and we talked about it on the, lo- the last show that he was on, and we talked about just how important podcasting is and how much of a game changer it's now becoming for some shows like such as Coast to Coast AM and, and where their, maybe their ratings have kind of gone down now because podcasts are out there and you can hear like Mike is a good example. You know, he goes on coast to coast. Well, people can either pay to hear him on coast to coast or they can pay or they can not pay to hear him on Conspiranormal or Grimerica or any of the other countless podcasts that he goes on. So it's changing the dynamic, I think. You know, it certainly is. And I'll, I'll say this too. Uh, Doyle's famous fictional sleuth had, had used to say, Sherlock Holmes, of course, that he he kept from his mind as much uh, in terms of sports and politics and other current affairs. Uh, he kept that from his mind as much as possible, so as to allocate the the necessary brain space to be able to devote to the serious science of deduction. Now that doesn't mean that we all need to become uh, detectives and 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 be applying. Uh, logical deductions, you know, to, to everything in life, although some of us find that interesting. I know Mike and I do, but but coming back to something that Mike had been talking about, um, how much, especially through not only entertainment, but also I think the news, which I would liken more to what we would call infotainment, I've heard some commentators yeah. use as a term. It's, it's this kind of, um, it's kind of a very contrived sort of information driven by uh, special interests, 
and also by the uh, the maximum uh, presentation in in an, in an urgent and at times uh, almost almost just grossly uh, overemphasized kind of kind of uh, uh, you know urgency that you see with 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 news these days. It's it's something that is presented in a way to try and hook listeners and viewers and to keep them embroiled in this sort of chaos that seems to have become the everyday. Things don't necessarily have to be that difficult. Uh, things don't necessarily have to be seen through the lens of the mainstream networks. And I'm not necessarily trying to go on an anti-corporatist or, or, or corporate rant, rather, although sure. corporatist might, <laughs> might qualify <laughs> just as well, in the sense that really I think that there is sort of a continuum between government agencies that are all, uh, or rather that they view the corporate steering and control of media and entertainment as being beneficial and hence corporatist in the sense that they are really in favor of this 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 kind of a this kind of an infotainment driven culture in which we exist uh, but i don't think that that's necessarily the real reality and what we're missing which robert touched on beautifully is conversations that's what's interesting to me about podcasting if we want to tie this in with new media and with technology is that Podcasting, unlike the 24-hour news cycle, the ticker at the bottom of the screen, uh, you know, the top of the hour and the bottom of the hour news with weather on the eights. I mean, what we have with podcasting is an open, unadulterated, often filtered and uncensored dialogue, a discussion. It can be about any subject. It can be with anybody. It can occur at any time, and it's listen-on-demand, which means that the listener can hear it at any time that they want to. And that is a more open, honest, and accessible medium for the exchange of ideas than anything that we've seen in a long time. You realize how unprecedented that is? But it starts with a conversation. Imagine in this room where we are, and I'll be tweeting photographs of this and momentous occasion that we're calling the Conspiranormal uh, 100 here. <laughs> uh, i, I got to say, you can take all the microphones out of the room, and this should still be happening in every living room and den. You know, People should be getting together and talking. They should be getting together, and they should be having these discussions. They should be informing one another and informing themselves, and they should be engaged in peaceful, friendly discussion. Um, earlier today... Adam, you and I were talking a bit about uh, not just negative skepticism, but negativism in general. And I see so much of that in this cultural to, the culture today where people are more than happy to give themselves to a negativist attitude in that they will criticize and they will pick apart and they will attack without offering any kind of a better solution themselves. It's very easy to sit up on the high ground and toss stones at what you don't like, but to take those pebbles and to build a monument and make something better of it, it does take more time. It takes more blood, sweat, and tears, and few are, in truth, willing to put the effort behind that, but we should. It's so easy to become negativist, and I don't think that our media-driven culture that we live in is necessarily fostering that attitude that we need to have where we are engaged with one another and with the problems that we face, the significant problems. Uh, which are greater, you know, and and will require more kind of paraphrasing Einstein than the technologies and the resources that we have at our, uh, you know, available to us now at our disposal. But they can be and will be overcome. It starts on the ground level. And so I think it's important not to allow ourselves to be given to negativism and to picking apart, you know, and, and wailing and moaning, but not really doing anything constructive to help. Media does that to an extent, yeah. A focus, an overt focus, I think, on negativism. They do. People do that. 
our politicians are doing it. Mr. Trump, I think, is is, is quite given to that kind of an, uh, an approach too. Rather than being <laughs> gracious for the attention he gets, he often goes on the attack with those who who disagree with him. And I would frankly fear the kind of administration that would fall under a man who has that kind of an attitude about those who disagree with him. So anyway, not to ramble on, but I think that it's important that we have to see what we have here, what simple things can be done to move forward in a positive way, To, as Robert had talked about, to recognize the importance of positivity and not give ourselves to the negativism, whether that be through the media or culture or politics or even just, I think, human nature itself. We all have that darkness to an extent. And I'm the guy, you know, the man in black here, you know, <laughs> dressed in black, so I guess I'm fit to talk about it. But the point is, is that we don't necessarily have to give ourselves to that. It's the easiest way out. It's not the best. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I want to turn the discussion to, as Robert so, so elegantly put it, the other half, and that is the paranormal. And two of the, the topics that we've talked a lot about was uh, ghosts, very early on, I haven't really covered a lot in the ghost field lately, and also UFOs. And this is all this kind of like the fun stuff to kind of speculate on. And Joe, I want to get you in here because you're someone that, you know, I've known you for 12 years, uh, worked with you for, I worked with you for a long time, and we've had a lot of discussions about the paranormal. And it's kind of inspired you to do certain to, to to do certain projects, and you've also worked on uh, ghost shows. I I, I kind of want to get your idea of like where do you think the paranormal research could go, or where it should go? Okay, I want to comment a little bit about what everybody's saying, and I agree with everybody talking. Just keep in mind that. It's a puppet thing. You'll hear it, but government, who's ever in charge, they want you to be their puppet. So if you like being a puppet, you know, that's good. But I, I, I say, you know, I'm on the side of I don't like being a puppet, so I do what I want to do. And that, that's sort of what's led me into the paranormal stuff is right. you're not taught this stuff in school. You're, you're taught puppet knowledge you know yeah. <laughs> i yeah. like that yeah. that's, that's <laughs> quotable right there this would be a podcast called the puppet knowledge, the puppet knowledge. podcast <laughs> yeah you, you, they give you a textbook if you don't mark those right answers then you get it wrong and you get in trouble but what you know which is fine that that stuff is knowledge that we know you know um you guys were given it a term earlier um we know all that stuff. That's good. You know, how many times do you have to learn a math problem? You know, come on, let's talk about new science, new technology. Except for the history, of course, Adam. I so nobody can hear you. <laughs> well, I mean, talk into the microphone, Luke. <laughs> it's, it's all good. Go ahead. Resume. <laughs> the, um, <clears throat> that's how science is anyways. We would still be in caves if nobody figured out that you could um, build a house, you know, out of wood and a tree. You can actually cut a tree and it could could shelter you. You know, that is actually technology. Wood, you know, the fabrication of things. So same thing with, with paranormal stuff. It, you've got overwhelming evidence of people seeing, you know, an apparition or something and, and science just laughs at it. They laugh at people, 
or you know the 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 puppet masters they laugh at the people who who bring that up you know and that that's just it it actually drives me further to prove my point so <clears throat> i i've been working on um uh, a project called light and motion tracker it's it's designed um it was originally designed to enhance small movements in video and MIT actually figured out the math behind it. So they, in so many words, they wanted, they, they got funded. It was government funded also, which is strange. So maybe the government is slowly releasing knowledge to the public in different ways, but I could not stop looking at this stuff because or maybe you just stumbled upon something serendipitously that they had no yeah. clue they even... Yeah, I think you're right too, Adam, because I actually called the people at MIT who designed this program, and they sort of laughed at me. They're like, no, it doesn't. It doesn't do that. And I'm like, you guys should win the Nobel Prize. You guys just figured out how to find ghosts. And they, they're like, well, we designed this to show you know blood flow from far away and stuff. I'm like, okay. So, well, I'll see you later then, you know, but I, <laughs> to me, it's like a gold mine. So I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to make an application for the iPhone or Android that actually can show people what I'm seeing. So, so many words, you put a video into the application and it analyzes every single pixel of data and the pixels that are next to it and it amplifies it amplifies all the changes, but you, you see the smallest little change be amplified. So like something that's pretty much transparent to our human eyes gets brought out. And by doing video at first, you could actually see things appear and disappear really quickly. So I found out sort of that ghosts are moving very quickly most of the time. And I have a feeling, though, that they could slow down if they want because their consciousness... This is all theory too. I just want ever people to prove me wrong or right, you know. So, anyways, I, I made an application that people can use their phone now and just take three or four random pictures of a location, then analyze those photos and see what patterns are showing up in the data. And and what drove me also further was the idea of compressing data. You see that a lot. It started with the MP3. You know, they were compressing audio to another format and then put it on your phone. And this is because of storage capacities. But you're losing the finer uh -huh. details in everything. Yes. So to me, that was a government cover-up that they're compressing data. And what about the... They're, th they're taking, in so many words, a 100-megabyte file and turning it into 2 megabytes. What? Where's the other 98 megabytes of data? That can't all be garbage, you know? So, so <clears throat> putting it on the iPhone and doing regular photos, which are uncompressed. Video is still compressed. So we're taking, we upped it a level this year. We've got it using less compressed data and we're see, seeing even more stuff than we saw in video in the video technology. So, um, Guys, it's a wake-up call, pretty much. Is I can't say the government's been lying to us or putting us down, but there is more out there. Don't get 
depressed and in your lowly um, state of existence and get, you know, suppressed by the government and think that there's nothing out there for you is I say, wake up and follow your heart and, mm-hmm. and just, I don't know, explore things like, you know, you're not, you got to ask more questions and do things. And that's sort of what I've been doing with the paranormal. I worked with the ghost asylum show and I, I was involved in helping them um, advance the science too, but they, they're really, they're caught up into the entertainment part and the, the ratings. So they, you won't see them use much of the data that I've given them. They would just cut it. It's on the cutting room floor pretty much. We, we went through, we would have ghosts sitting on top of these traps these guys are making and we would, we would go over the evidence and they would cut out the, the really cool pictures and evidence that, that the software I've been working with was showing. So I think the industry maybe thinks that they're not ready for it. Like, you know, so same thing with UFOs and stuff. I've been seeing things in the sky. You could point your camera at the sky and take pictures. Guess what? There is hitting things in the clouds. This is ridiculously crazy. But um, if you're interested in UFOs, I say get the program and start taking pictures because it'll amplify transparent objects pretty much. Let me ask you, Joe. Your experience working on on that television show was... What did you learn from that? What was what did you what did you take away from from that experience? Well, the coolest thing was Doogie introduced me to this technology from MIT. He says, "Joe, you got to check this out." So I sort of sort of just blew it off, but then I got bored one day and I checked out his link he sent me. Then from there, that's the basic thing I learned, but I also learned a crazy thing that there uh, that there are a lot of hidden agents that work in the entertainment industry <laughs> yeah, and that's... agents I rec- I'm saying are people in the government that are promoting government policy. Well, I mean, what, I, what I'm kind of going there is, is that did you like, did you primarily see that? Did you see that there was a seriousness to what they wanted to do and what they wanted to accomplish, that they wanted to change things, or do you just think it was just just entertainment? Okay, yeah. Ghost Asylum, guys, everybody's getting a a bad rap thinking that the guys are just goofing off, but everything we did was serious. But the the final decision is up to – they have a little survey that they take, and they show the clips to in Hollywood or something, and if they get a a bad vote, they change it oh, yeah, because there's a lot of pressures the, in a network from yeah. And, there's and it money goes steps and steps and steps. They, yeah, yeah, they'll lose millions of dollars if they put up the wrong stuff. So, so if someone says these guys are talking too technical, you better drop that. They're going to drop it in a second. So, so um, it does look silly the show, but we did our best, and we're all under contract to have to listen to the producers. So. It's sort of like your hands are tied, but you're doing the best you can, you know. So it's sort of like your mom will take you to church when you're little, but you can't, you understand what's going on. So you really want to just, you know, do your own thing, but your your hands are tied. You have to listen to your mom. So that's sort of like what we were in 
you know, filming the show is we got to listen to our mom or else we get in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's one thing I want to get into. And Mike and I were talking about this earlier today as well. Dr. Future, Robert, uh, I really want to get you you guys insight on this. Luke, you too. (laughs) Do you really want my insight? uh, All the time, man. All the time. You're you're holding back. There's there's profundity in there. But anyway, uh, we were talking about a kind of generational divide within the UFO community. And like, it seems like there's an older generation that maybe grew up in like maybe the 50s, 60s in the, the, the Cold War era. And they see UFOs, flying saucers, whatever you want to call it, as a primarily nuts and bolts. Um, but these are real tangible objects. And then we have a... We have a, another generation that's now kind of coming up that has views UFOs, flying saucers, as kind of like a intangible or a spiritual or, or an inner space kind of mechanism. And I very much think that the, quite a few people in this room view it the same way, including myself. So, like, I just kind of wanted to get your idea on this first. On what you think that, that 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 that's an actual real perception that there is that kind of generation gap there. Well, yeah. <coughs> Excuse me, goodness. I'm the guy who's always arguing against coughing on the microphone. And there, I did it. <laughs> oh, live and loud, baby. Okay, it's your microphone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, 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 this right, is. Exactly. My, uh, um, as far as the generational divide goes, as it relates to the uh, discussion of uh, UAP or uh, unidentified flying objects, you know, again, let's preface this by saying that this is a, a an area of discussion that many relegate almost unconditionally and you know uh, to the to the to the lunatic fringe. And I don't think that that's necessarily a fair position because when we're talking about unidentified flying objects. That acronym, UFO, had been employed by Edward Ruppelt, the first head of the Project Blue Book in 1953, I believe, for purpose of trying to come to a better determination about describing, or rather than a determination, I mean a better uh, method uh, for describing apparently anomalous objects seen in the sky that were not in every instance flying saucers, which was the darling term of the press at the time. These are just terms. These are just terms. And, and, you know, again... Jung wrote about man and his symbols, and Ernst Cassier, of course, has talked about uh, you know language and myth. And the important thing I think that we have to remember is that the phraseology and the terminology applied to different subjects and and different concepts often steers the way that the mind conceives of these things. So when we talk about UFOs, although and despite the effort by Rippleton and others over the years to steer us away from flying saucers to UFO, UFO to UAP, UAP to whatever. Right. Now we may use to try to identify this. Almost inevitably, these, term, these terms become hijacked. And if I say UFO, nine times out of ten, most people are going to say alien spaceship. I had a publisher of a well-known uh, but small publishing house in this genre Um when I'd been talking about, uh, you know, the possibility of clandestine government operations and different kinds of other sources of these craft, he said, well, that's all well and good, but Mikey, he says, we're not talking about spaceships from someplace else, so really it's a moot point. And I thought, no, it's not, because you're falling, you're, you're falling into that same intellectual trap that most do when we talk about UFO and what a UFO is. Now, as far as 
the generational divide, I think that culture and interpretation of such things often informs the different viewpoints that are espoused at any given time. A breath after the war. In Scandinavia, we, of course, had these what were called ghost rockets. And these were, in many instances, in large part, uh, representative of what we would call today more generally UFOs. There were a variety of things that were being seen, but many likened them to rocket-like technologies. Now, why might that be the case? On the technological side, it very well could have been the, the case that there were rocket technologies, likely those that were akin to the V-1 and V-2 rockets that were being produced at Pinamunde and that were subsequently uh, acquired by the, the British, uh, the, the U.S., and also the Russians uh, in what would, I guess, become popularly known thereafter as Operation Paperclip and the removal of the German rocket scientists and other uh, scientists and, and engineers uh, to the American Space Agency and other divisions as well as to Russia as, as well. But, but the thing is, is that all, apart from the technological possibility that there were things being tested, we also have the psychological interpretation that what did we fear the most? What was the death deal or what was the most frightening technology at that time? Well, weapons capable of delivering uh, explosives and, of course, possibly atomic or you know, even a hydrogen bomb. And so... Naturally, one interpretation of strange things seen in the sky was a weapon akin to what we had seen that was innovated by the Germans during the Second World War, and which continued to be innovated in the decades thereafter. And then in the 1950s, you know, we began to see this idea of a flying saucer. But you go back and you read those news reports of what the flying saucers, as were written about, were actually described as being, and they sound an awful lot like the jet aircraft that we see of today. And then the 1960s rolls around, the 1970s the 1980s and 90s, we watched the phenomena change because things that are occurring in in culture do, I think, color people's perception of the phenomena. Today, the big buzzword, if ever there was one, is drone. Right. And so often I hear what are obviously encounters with piloted drones uh, as observed by, or in some instances, there are near collisions with drones and commercial aircraft, but they're still described as UFOs, which is... I guess is interpreted by some as being some wacko story of a quote-unquote alien spaceship almost taking an aircraft. That's not what's being implied, but it, of course, is a little more sensational, and so it gets more clicks, you know, for the clickbaiting sites and the news sites that like to try and drive traffic, you know, right. through using sensational titles. So and there are a lot of these different things that are employed and have been employed over the years, whether it's culturally and whether it's intentional or not that drive perception of this phenomenon. Now, as far as the UFO research community, and I'll be very brief in saying this, you and I were talking about my friend Peter Robbins earlier. Right, you know, Peter had on the show. Yeah, good friend of mine, who I spent a lot of time stomping around New York with. Peter and I at times have very similar and at times have very different opinions about UFOs. We never disagree or, or, or fight about that. Again, I don't think that you have to have some sort of a battle with people who you disagree on any fundamental points. But I will say that, you know, having talked with Pete, he's got a lot of different ideas about the UFO phenomena than what I have. I've had a lot of people, not Peter Robbins, by the way, but people of you know his generation who have really come after me and said, you know, what you have to say about UFOs is, is really not of, of any substance. You know, you're trying to offer cultural commentary on the subject, but, you know, you're not giving us good data about a sighting, the people who saw it, you know, the, the weather conditions that day, what was happening under the circumstances that that person allegedly saw that saucer or whatever, you know, hovering over, you know, whatever town. And I've said, well, maybe the reason I'm not giving you those kind of reports is because don't we have an awful lot of that data and what's it given us thus far? We do have to analyze the culture. We do have to recognize 
coming back to the fundamental point that you make with the question that you ask, that there is, if a phenomenon exists, there is a broad range of different interpretations that are applied to that and have been and will continue to be. And which has led me kind of full circle from being, okay, cool, alien spacecraft perhaps to being, well, is there really any justification for alien visitation? What's the proof? Could it be something interdimensional? Could it be something, I mean, more akin to time travel? Could it be, it could be any number of things. It could be none of these things. And then there's also, of course, what we, without question, I think can prove, although it may be debatable. We do know life exists on Earth. It, debatable whether it's intelligent life or not. But we do know that we have life here on Earth. <laughs> and I think that we can say that from that point, we can you know, we can start and we can say whatever strange technologies exist, we can begin by looking at ourselves and say what among this phenomena can be accounted in terms of human technologies, whether or not they are widely known. And that gets into the realm of the conspiranormal, I guess, a little bit for many. And they, at that point, walk away and dismiss it and say, I would rather say there is no phenomenon than to say that this is anything that could exist and yet has remained hidden in some way, like Bosley and many of the yeah. proponents of a breakaway civilization would propose. Um, so for me, I think that the generational divide is, is, is certainly existent. It's influenced by culture. It's also influenced by worldview and also at, at times, you know, professional background and, 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 and things like this. People's worldview is shaped by their experience. And everyone with a different experience is going to interpret the phenomena differently. And I'll leave you with this on that point. It's often led me to think that with or without the existence of actual UFOs, the concept alone is interesting enough with its varied interpretations that I think that with or without actual physical UFOs, that concept presents enough fodder for debate and for philosophy and I think for deep contemplation that the effect of the so-called UFO on our culture and on cultures worldwide is already uh, not only recognizable, but I think it's at times been profound and it's really unique to think that this could just be something that's really a ghost amidst our culture and our folk traditions in the modern era. If there were nothing to it, you see what I'm saying? The idea alone has done so much to change our concept right. of reality, space travel, you know, human relations with the eventual contact we will have with non-human intelligence, whether it comes here from elsewhere or through artificial intelligence, you know, it is created. So there are a lot of things that the study of UFOs afford us, and each different interpretation in that sense to an extent is important and perhaps useful as well. But the generational divide does exist. Right. Dr. Future, let me get your idea on this. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you know, I, it's hard for me not to have an opinion on something, but this is something I don't feel properly equipped since, to my knowledge, I've not encountered a UFO encounter myself, so... What did you I, see at Area 51? I have to rely... Well, well I did, he, did see, see, I he did see an old man. He did see Gandalf. Yeah, I did see basically Gandalf. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I saw something... My uh, Mrs. Future and I saw something flying in our backyard about six months ago that had lights flying on it and around, but I think it was a drone Yeah. Uh, that we pointed. It was really strange. But... Uh, you know, when you were talking about how the effect it has on humanity and its thinking, what came to mind at the end of your discussion there was in the 1950s, talking about generation gap, the main thing that it was used for as a narrative was that the alien was made to be an agent of man's accountability. Yeah. The, the alien civilization always came to judge man on why they didn't live in peace, 
why they had atomic weapons, why they had the ability to destroy themselves. And it served almost de facto as the role we would have previously attributed to God. Right. That God would have held, you know, his creation accountable for its actions on earth. Then that was supplanted with with the alien race. And one of the most interesting movies I ever saw was called The 27th Day from the 1950s, I believe. Have you seen The 27th Day? It actually involves a a group of people that appear random, a... um, American, I think a newspaper man, uh, a British woman who's an artist, a Chinese peasant, and a Russian soldier who are basically called up to a spaceship. And the, the, the species, alien species, says, we're evaluating your suitability to, to remain in the cosmos and whether you can live peaceably. And I'm paraphrasing here but basically they gave them some kind of capsule that had the ability to destroy the earth each of them and it says you have to hang on to this for i don't know 72 hours or some period of time and if none of you activate it then we will let you be if any one of you activate it that's the end of it for you all and so they all get transported back to where they were uh the the uh, Chinese peasant in, in this war-torn area, maybe Mongolia, and then each of them to their place. Unfortunately, what they hadn't counted on is that the aliens were going to announce on public airwaves in all of their areas where they lived that these people had these capsules. They're terrorists. So suddenly the whole world knew that they had them, and so they began... So the, the, the space race and the Cold War became a rush on to get a hold of these people. And the Russians, of course, tried to torture their guy. He refused to get rid of it. And I'll let people watch the story, how it unfolds, but it takes a very non-conventional approach. And the inevitable answer um, comes that the, the, the final answer in the appeal of the United Nations to their space brothers sounds very, very much like a traditional apocalyptic Christian narrative. Mm that they are calling a second coming to come, and they're inviting them to come, that they've passed this test to come. And um, even a mass disappearance, what, what's commonly known in the vernacular as a rapture, happens in this movie where all of the evil people on Earth are basically raptured out of the way and taken <laughs> out of the way. That then the remaining people of the UN invite these people to come. So there's some kind of, I think... Yeah, that's one example. You can look at the day the the year stood still and other things. There is a conflation of what we perceive aliens and our responsibility to them with our religious views. Oh yeah, and even people of varying different levels of religiosity. And in fact, those less so maybe maybe the connection is not as broad. But there's something that we're seeing ourselves as accountable accountable to whoever these people are. And so culturally, you know, I can't really speak on whether they're there or not or, or what's going on. I think it's important to maintain an open mind. Um, I'm, I'm willing to consider data as it becomes available. But what is the real answer is how do we respond to it? And that's the part that I'm very, very much interested in. And um, in my background, and particularly in religious upbringing, you... You can have many different reactions. Often it's one of abject fear and mistrust. If anything you don't understand shows up, then it's probably up to no good. <laughs> and you see that in dramatizations of it. You'll always have the people. I always love, if you ever watch Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, there'd be some alien appear on the uh, 
on the submarine, and this guy Kowalski, he always would lunge at him to get a punch. You know, the thing's crackling with energy, and he thinks a right hook's going to take it out, and Alien takes him out, he goes to sick bay for another week, you know? <laughs> and that's the reaction of a lot of, of people from the culture I'm familiar with. Well, we better go do something to it. And they project that under other cultures that are different, too. Uh, alien means more than being extraterrestrial to a lot of people. That's very true. And uh, so, to me, those are the factors that would come into play if we did have a sudden visitation like this. But I tell you, we're, we're, we're sort of flirting a little bit with some of these issues now, with some of these weird cryptic things that NASA is saying about Mars, about finding water on Mars, water on Pluto, other kinds of anomalies it does sort of sense that the public is being conditioned for more announcements. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not willing to go as far as like a Richard Hoagland kind or some of these people who would have had it happen a long time ago. But it does almost remind me of the, was it the Brookings Institution report about the, the perilous response humanity would have to an announcement. Therefore, they have to keep it secret if they know something like this. It almost seems like those hesitant steps are the policy they're taking now to prepare people for that. Well, it's, it, I thought I thought that a couple, was a year or two ago when the um, the Catholic Church came out and said that the discovery of of alien life wouldn't negate the beliefs of, right. of the Catholic Church or whatever. It was like, why would they just out of nowhere say that unless they thought that we were really close? Or but you took the words out of my mouth because the Catholic Church was exactly what I was thinking as the first ones out of the plate mm. to actually even start addressing this issue because they've had a keen interest. For a long time with their Vatican Observatory and things like that. And they, they are doing some prep work. And you have to ask the question why, like mm. you're doing. Well, we apparently have some people who <clears throat> still believe that the moon landing was false. <laughs> <laughs> so we have to overcome that, too. <laughs> oh, man, it sounds strangely familiar. What was it? Didn't that come up in a conversation? What um, last of course, night? Of course, the moon landing could be false, and aliens could come both. So they could both be <laughs> Robert. True. I want to get your I want to get your thoughts on this. Uh-huh. Same question. You think there's a generation gap between the kind of like fields of, of ufology, between the physical, and then another generation that believes that there may be more a lot more to it, <clears throat> spiritual. Um, um, I'm not seeing. I'm not seeing a a a general interest in ufology in the younger set. Yeah, that's what I want. Yeah. Uh, it's it's like that's for older older folks. It's like they they're on they're on a different area of interest. They're just not interested yeah. in that subject. Yeah. But I'd be interested, you know, if if anybody has had direct direct conversations with younger people see what it is they really think but i i am concerned that that uh, they're they're going to tend to follow whatever preconditioning they've received from the media mm-hmm. or if they're a if they're a kind of a rebel or a skeptic then they'll react against it and take an opposite point of view which I would consider preferable, of course. But in either case, they're going to find it difficult to sort through in any kind of a logical or scientific or deep understanding of it because they just don't have that information available to them. I mean, most of us who've been interested in that phenomenon 
it's been over the course of years, many years usually, before we acquire enough information that I know exactly what you're talking about when you mention certain events in UFO history. Yeah, I've studied that, but that's taken years to acquire that. And, and they don't have those years yet. Um, <clears throat> I wonder about that. <clears throat> I was thinking about that myself. Um, I think probably what we're seeing is m millennials, um, mm -hmm. people who were born in the Internet age and were raised in the Internet age. I think, number one, part of the, the issue that we might be seeing is that they were raised on media that displayed conspiracy theory as entertainment. Number one, you have like X-Files or something like that um, from the 90s. Uh, more recently, something like Supernatural or, you know, whatnot. And secondly, their main fodder is the Internet. And on the Internet, you do have a lot of information. Not all of that is solid. And I think that millennials inherently know that because they've kind of had to brush with that already. So you have um, kind of a, a natural skepticism that grows in, in younger people's minds, I think. Not accepting everything at face value, I would hope, <laughs> mm -hmm. to a certain extent. But that can also backfire when, um, when assessing information like stories about government conspiracies or paranormal activities. You know, one thing I just mentioned on that, uh, I think there may be, sitting here thinking of this, a parallel to some extent between the mindset of the UFO community and of the Bible prophecy community in this regard. The, the UFO community really got spun up after the 47 Roswell event. The Bible prophecy community really got spun up after the 1948 establishment of Israel. Both communities felt like within their lifetime and generation, something big was going to break as a result. Hmm. That that was the beginning of something in their generation that would make all this fantastic come to light. And both communities, in some respect, have been disappointed. That things have not come together like they have thought. You know, I'm one of the youngest people still around that remembers watching the moon landings. And I was very, very young when it happened. So you have people after that that were not around when they saw... So, you know, I wasn't even technically, like you would be, part of the real glory days of the space race. The Mercury astronauts, you know, this created a, a society and culture of people fascinated by space. Absolutely. There were new developments every month, virtually, some new milestone met. You know, it just in, in rocketry and in just X-15 or, or the new things. And so that was all tied into it. Things were going so fast with advances that UFO contact would just be a natural extension of that. And, and people had that interest. Now people are interested in a million different things. And I, I, you know, when you said that, I had been thinking that back in my mind, but I didn't have any data <coughs> to suggest whether young people were as interested in it. I just don't hear them talk about it in the areas I have. Maybe the X-Files maybe was one of the last areas that really were a cultural phenomenon to think about these issues. Because um, I don't hear it as much, but during the space age... That was all just tied to what we thought was a natural outcome for the fact that we have reached out to space and we're off to the races. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it didn't pan out quite that way, the way it looked in the 60s and early 70s. And so I think we might have a, a little bit of a fatigue and disappointment in both communities. 
And uh, maybe that's why there's sometimes there's a little waning interest. And I think NASA, it would behoove them, and it, I see incidents of this, where they throw out teasers now and then for no other reason than to obtain money. One, one incident like this that was so bizarre that they pursued it that they seems like to me they missed the big picture. I was riding on an airplane with an older gentleman, very, very nice, seemed to be very respectable. I felt very comfortable with him. And we didn't talk that much on the flight. I think I was probably tired of working on a proposal or something. Anyway, we got toward the end of our coast-to-coast -coast flight, and I happened to conversation to find out his background, and he was a scientific photographer. He processed images, turns out for NASA, and talked about a little bit of his background and experience. And as we were getting ready to land, he was talking about his involvement in a rover program on the moon that predated the, the manned landings. And I can't remember what it was, Pathfinder, it was a, it was a name, a, a Surveyor, maybe Surveyor Program. But anyway, um, he talked about him processing these images. And he was just speaking very off the cuff, very uh, nonchalant. And he mentioned that one of the pictures, I think it was from 67, showed a footprint, footprint on the moon. And they processed it and confirmed it. And he said they had all of these night meetings and were going over this because what they were hoping was to get a senator interested enough that it would get enough interest in Congress that they would actually fund more space research. So the whole interest that they had, according to him, was an interest that this would have a gee whiz effect to keep funding. Seemingly, they dis interested in seemingly the disregarding the fact that this is a footprint on the moon. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, this sort of blew my mind, and I'm trying to answer questions, and we're deplaning off of the uh, airplane, you know, and, and I got lost in the crowd with him. And I did go up and look up, and sure enough, that that rover program was a real program I had no idea about, and it was there. I can't verify anything else other than the story, but that he, he did pass the uh, seemingly sincerity test, and I tend to believe what, generally what he told me. But the reason I bring that up is their big concern was keeping the program afloat rather than the revelation of what they uncovered. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be a spectrum of people that just enjoy discovery for discovery's sake, but a lot of these people are motivated by the ability to keep something afloat. So they're going to issue dribs and drabs out at a minimum just to keep. Otherwise, the interest is not there if they don't. To, I'm kind of going to wind down this discussion, but Heather, I want to bring you in here. All right. And uh, as someone that has listened to this show since the very beginning, like I always say, we used to work together. And when I first started this show, we did work together. And so you've probably listened to just about every episode of the, of the show. I'm a couple episodes behind. And I just kind of wanted to get your kind of like general impressions of, you know, the first 100 episodes. Of oh, man. Who are your favorite guests? <clears throat> yeah. Um, I have to say favorite guests question from Dr. Future here. Um, uh, actually, Future, most. Future, of course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Dr. Future. I'm, you know, I'm not pandering. Wink, wink. <laughs> um yeah, the the folks that are that are here in this room are some of my favorites. I also really liked Adam Go Rightly. He was really fun. Uh, on every time you have him on, I'd, yep. I'd crank that up and tell everybody yeah, else to be quiet. He's going to be on the uh, non studio portion, not in studio portion of the of the of this show. So fantastic. Um. Um. Uh, gosh. 
<clears throat> I think uh, you asked a similar question on the 50th anniversary or the 50th episode show. Um, I feel like I'm, I'm coming from this <clears throat> as a listener. Uh, and sometimes I give you unsolicited feedback um, <laughs> while you're trying to do your, your, your job. Someone has to. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Sometimes loudly. <laughs> um, I feel like, um, well, as far as the production of the show is concerned, I feel like it's gotten really, really good. Um, I, I've been listening to a lot of different types of <clears throat> like paranormal conspiracy shows since you've started doing this. It's kind of piqued my interest in the subject. So I've been listening to quite a few different types and by far yours is in the top because I mean, so often, so often you listen to these kinds of shows and, and because it is free and it is the internet and anybody can just grab a microphone and plug it into their computer and do this thing. Oftentimes what happens is um, it's, it tries to be something like this, but it falls short in that, you know, you don't get the kinds of um, intersection of experience and good hosting. Are you referring to Micah's show? <laughs> I'm not making a commentary on oh, okay. Micah's show. No, you're making me sweat. She's never listened. Come on. <laughs> Let's just be honest. Sorry. I love you all the same. Uh, so, um, whew, getting hot. It's it's the baby. I have um, that effect on people. Oh, so does it. Maybe. Uh, but no, as far as uh, while listening to the show, though, I have to say I've. I've, I've kind of been introduced some new ideas, uh, new concepts. It's been interesting, if nothing else. Um, I'm, I'm coming at this from a bit of a skeptic's point of view uh, sure. for, for a lot of this. Um, I do believe in a spiritual realm. Uh, I do believe that weird things happen that science can't explain yet. Um, but that... Um, it's interesting. I've, I've been thinking about you and I and the way that we have interacted over the years. And I think that I, when we first met, you were much more of a skeptic and yeah. I was much more of the conspiracy theorist just with my head in the clouds. <laughs> and, and now I think that I've moved more to the skeptical side and you've moved a little bit more to the other, to a little the bit, other side a little, a little bit. bit. Um, so you, it's interesting, interesting there. You've introduced switch. me to some new, some new concepts that have, have completely blown my mind. Um, especially, especially as far as like government conspiracies. Like I've always yeah. kind of had an idea of like, well, there's a spiritual realm. I believe that I'm, I'm a Christian. Um, right. Um, by the way, Dr. Future, while you were talking earlier mm -hmm. about the whole, um, the way Christianity has been kind of coming at the recent unpleasantness, um, <clears throat> I felt like I should pass around like a, a, a plate or something, or we should start singing hymns. Like you were having some real <laughs> church up in here. Like <laughs> I want to start clapping hands. <laughs> Um, dancing in the aisles. Um, I'm going to pass the plate in just a minute. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I've, I've definitely come towards, um, your way of thinking, I guess, in that I had no idea. Not some of the stuff that Heather, was, could somebody get Luke and tell him to come back in here? <laughs> yeah, go on, Heather. Sorry. Paging uh, co-host, calling all co-hosts. <laughs> <laughs> 
But uh, yeah, I, I, I had no idea um, of of some of the government stuff that had happened. And then I start looking it up and I'm, I was fully expecting to find like maybe one footnote on something or whatever, but no, these are actually established facts. These things have happened, you know, like false flag, actually a thing. I cannot wait till you read my books. (laughs) (laughs) So, so yeah, um, uh, eye opening, I would say. Uh, and I think conspiracy normals come a long way and done some really good work. Yeah. I want to bring, thank you. Thank you. I'd like to actually take a moment to thank you for, for having me on the show and to thank Luke, wherever he is. I'll, well, I'll impersonate I him wanted for to, you. <laughs> yeah, we can just do uh, an impersonation. I'll just impersonate you. <laughs> yeah. Here, let me grab my liquor bottle. Here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted, I'm actually going to bring you in next. I was going to bring you and Luke in. But uh, I, what um, I wanted to... Speak of the devil. Speak of the devil and he shall appear. What I wanted to say with, this is kind of the history of of Rob here. Oh, good. Is that uh, (laughs) episode 60, I had a major snafu on my sound, and that was with the Tennessee Wraith Chasers, who had, well, still do have a rather big television show. And I was like, you know, damn it, my sound sounds terrible. And it's like, you know? Luke, you remember? Yeah, I remember that. And uh, <laughs> and and so I'm talking to my friend Alyssa at work, and she says, "You know, my boyfriend Rob, he's a he's a sound engineer." And I'm I'm sitting there just I'm sitting there just kind of like, well, I mean, if he wants to come look at it, and I'm thinking most sound engineers or sound guys that I've ever met are usually just like they just. I really wouldn't think they would want to have the time of day to do a podcast. I thought that would be something that would be for someone that mixes music and does that kind of work. That, We're all that's pretentious not, assholes. You can that, say it. That's not what you want to, would want to do. But Rob comes in. <laughs> Rob comes in, sees what we're doing. And I thought, okay, I don't know if he's going to be back. When he comes back the next week, brings, brings mics to the house. Brings his board. We try to figure things out over there at the house. And ever since then, he's become a staple and has become, you know, not just a producer, but another co-host and a good friend now. And how about you, savior of the show? Savior. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cause I had that point where I was just like, I was just about to give up and Rob, what I really wanted to ask you is it's kind of the same that, that I asked Heather. You know, you, you're you're here, you're always listening, you're always soaking things in, and I just kind of wanted to get your idea of some of the things that you might have learned through the show. Oh, man. I I think just about everything I know I've learned off of the guests you have on the show, I feel, it's like, you know, Luke and Jeff were joking earlier about, you know, who's the dumbest person in the room, but it's like, every, <laughs> every week, like, it's like every other, every other thing that pops up, I gotta get on Wikipedia to, like... Yeah. You know, reference what's going on, and, and I just and I that love just it. means you're learning. Though. No, exactly, and right. I, and and, I'm, and that 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 was my point is that I I don't I don't get that kind of knowledge from any other source. It's like I look forward to this because every week it's it's some it's a new topic, it's a new guest, it's and it's um it's people who have really researched stuff and really care about stuff and are really passionate. And, right. Um. It's it's just it's great. It's been great being a part of it and and seeing it grow. Uh-huh. And, my, and my wife has just walked in the door, so everybody say hello. hello. <laughs> One of Adam's groupies. 
Yeah, that's my only groupie, I think. Uh, well, I mean, he's got me. Got you. At least while I'm in town. You and me, Mike. That's Luke. who he was referring to. Yeah, there's yeah. Mrs. Mrs. Spiranormal, and there's co-host. us. Right. Uh-huh. Lukey Skyrider. Lukey Duke. Yeah, Luke, I'm, I'm, so <laughs> I'm so brave for being on the show and, yeah. and speaking my mind like once every 10 episodes. Lukey Dukey. You put yourself down, but you do. You, you contribute very much, sir. I just kind of want to get your ideas, some of the things that you've learned about doing the last hundred episodes and doing the show. Man, um, you know, sometimes sometimes some of your guests, uh, I'm not saying that they're being sensational, but they have a very sensational lean on, on some of their episodes, and they have a way of speaking that really draws you into what they're saying. There, there's been uh, a handful of guests that I couldn't break away you know, from yeah. what, I, I just, what are they going to say next? What are they going to say next? I think the last guest we had on Rebecca Roth, I think you were in that very much in that moment. Yeah, and Scott right. Bennett, had we True. been able to have him on for quite a while, <laughs> it would have been, I think you were like really into that. And then that just went kaput real quick because of weird issues. But yeah, right. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I'm learning stuff. It, it, so when I guess I'm, when I, what I'm trying to say is it has to be packaged in a way <laughs> that appeals to me because I grew right. up with, you know, watching MTV. <laughs> it, it, Short attention, yeah, attention right. span theater. Exactly. Yeah. Like, I, I feel, I mean, I feel like I've conquered the best of my ADD, you know, but I, I definitely <laughs> still have it. So if something is not like extremely sensational to me, I kind of like, you know, start drifting away. Yeah, but I see it, you every now and then nodding your head like yeah. yeah. I mean, you you can always tell whenever I'm like leaning in the mic or you know, with the headphones on. Oh, what's he gonna say next? And you've had plenty of guests like that, right? Uh, yeah, that and um, you know, sometimes it gets emotional in here. Yep. You know, uh, people, like right now. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All the good times we. I think they're about together. to hug. I just got something in my eyes off. It's getting bromantic in here. You know? <laughs> <laughs> just like just like necromantic. Necropantic, in fact. Well, when I first uh, thought of doing this hundredth episode, I thought about writing a long almost dissertation-like paper of everything that I've learned, and I think that I will save that for whenever and whatever the last episode is. But I don't think I'm going to go quite there yet. But let's just say that for me it's been an experience, and I've met some awesome people, such as Micah, through through doing this, and other people like Scotty Roberts and Rocky Stucci, um, Nick Redford and Guy Malone, some of the people that I knew before, but um, it's opened, my, I think, myself up to a whole new world of, <coughs> I think, different ideas. And as I said before, um, there's some basic things in my core that have stayed the same from when I first started doing the show. But there's a lot, I think, that, that, that has changed and a lot of different ideas and a lot of things that are stewing around in my mind. And maybe one day I'll actually sit down and write these things down like Dr. Future has been urging me to do for a very long time. Mm-hmm. But I, uh, I really think it's a, a real journey and, you know, we're, we're actually with this year, I thought, uh, of ending this year with episode 100, but I'm actually going to pull in another episode next weekend. Um, 
with Robert uh, W. Sullivan talking about es- uh, esoteric cinema, and uh, which is actually is a guest that I found from listening to the Grayling Report. He's a good buddy. Yeah, Robert is a he's a wellspring of knowledge, but he that sure and is. many other subjects. Yeah, not just Freemasonry. Yeah, so that should be a good way to wrap up the year. Absolutely. Um, this show, guys, will be posted actually first. Uh, there were a few of us that were here. Uh, Rob, Micah, Robert, and Mike, we were all sitting um, talking to people over Skype before uh, we did this, and that's actually going to be posted second. However, chronologically, it's actually before. But I uh, didn't want to go like totally crazy and do a five-hour marathon. Let's save that for the la- very last episode. Well, how come we had to set through it? Then? Yeah, yeah, it <laughs> felt like five gonna, hours well, to us, well, didn't if, it? If I, if I, if I'm going to try to get to 301 so I can beat Future Quake. Yeah, great. That's well, what I'm going to do. Then you can do the long show. <laughs> uh, if I could just say something for you to think about in context of this. Yeah. Think about when you started this show. Right. Think about the big name people that you tried to get on this show, and they didn't. Pardon my pun. They didn't know you from Adam. Okay. <laughs> And you didn't know a soul. And think about where you are now, where you have some pretty famous people who are contacting you, asking to be on the show. Yep. When they have something new, you are on their Rolodex short term to get to. So you're sort of a kingmaker now. And that's happened in a very short period of time. And what that takes is work. It takes work. It takes not giving up when you have a sound problem or when you have a guest that doesn't show up or... When the hosts want to kill each other or production wants to kill each other, that's what it takes to stick to. And that's the lesson for the listeners who I'm sure you would want to tell them. They probably need to think about doing their own niche show too. And what it does, they always say, they always say you don't learn something till you teach it. And you could also say you don't really know subjects till you host a show right. like this or write a book or do other. You have to get personally engaged for things finally to start to click and not just be a spectator. We live in a day and age there's no excuse for people. If you listen to Future Quake, you can find out what non-talented people over their head do to still produce a show. And it's it's possible to do. And uh, so I'm hoping people will take the legacy of this show and say, while I may not be a conspiranormal overnight, I'm going to use their inspiration to try to do what I can and start having the conversations we talked about in my own little circle and we can trade notes and we can go on each other's show and we can compare what we've learned and we will just let all of the big money people do their own rotten thing and delude their own people and we will go and we'll enrich each other's lives learn in a trustworthy manner of each other and do it and your show embodies that and the last thing i would just say is probably what you need to do in hindsight of your hundred years is think about the people who encouraged you to do a show like this and really Award them monetarily, uh, in some way Thank for you. for what they've done. So. <laughs> Give Micah fifteen dollars right now. <laughs> Time to pay the big ones, buddy. <laughs> let, me, let, let me say this to add to one of the things that you said there is I've had a couple of people that I've corresponded with on Facebook um, that that are listeners and really have liked the show. And I have actually told both of those guys, I've said, you know, you should do a podcast. Mm-hmm. It's not as hard as you think to do. Because this was something that I always, that ever since I listened to shows like World of the Unexplained <coughs> and other shows uh, in that genre, I always wanted to do a podcast. But I always thought it's just going to be so hard to do it. 
And eventually, just one day, I just decided to break down and just finally go ahead and try it. And I, what I was kind of encouraging them to say, you know, it's not a hard thing to do, and you can get your voice out there. Mm-hmm. You know, and one of the people that I really admire, Micah, I admire how he does his show. Uh, he doesn't always have guests on the show. He does his show by himself. It, it is an amazing show to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, you know, and, and I'm like you though, and that's what's part of what's so great. I, I on my primary podcast, I've done a lot of different podcasts, and there are going to be some new ones coming out here shortly. Um, but uh, on, on my primary show, the Graylian Report, this past weekend, I, I did a, a, a little segment talking about inspiring people who have ideas or who are interested in this sort of thing to do their own shows, and um, I mentioned that. Uh, in 2012, when we did the first Paradigm Symposium, I went there, and there were a couple of listeners of my show, Graham, uh, Grimes and Graham, the two, the, the Graham Graham, uh, Darren Grimes, of course, and Graham uh, from Graham America Podcast. They hadn't started doing their own show at that point, and um, and they really were kind of inspired by listening to shows like mine, uh, as well as had been the case uh, Cam and Kyle of the Expanded Perspective Show, and of course you as well. Um, now, I'm not the sole inspiration there were a lot of great shows out there that inspire people to do programs like this as i've been inspired by great shows and those who've done programs like you know dr future with the future quake for a number of years uh going all the way back to granddaddy art bell you know keeping us all awake at night and making sure you had subjects on that would keep us from sleeping too but the, the point is is that it is important to pass the torch and that's the most redeeming thing for me personally about all of this in addition to uh, you know the fellowship of getting together, sharing ideas, talking, enjoying one another's company. Uh, it's also putting years into a podcast myself and, and having put out hundreds of episodes, but then being able to celebrate another hundred milestone for you guys. And I said that on my podcast. I said, you know, I, I believe enough in the people who are doing shows like this that when Adam called uh, and said, will you drive four and a half hours and carve out an entire weekend of your schedule to come over here, uh, drink beer, uh, and uh, and sit and, and and sit in a studio and talk for five hours. And I said, uh, "Hell yeah!" I, I can't always make that commitment to people, awesome. but I said, "But I said I will be here because at that time that you've designated on that occasion, I can and I want to be there." And it's very rewarding for me to be able to say this. This isn't my personal victory, but this is a victory. You know, seeing you guys celebrating one hundred. You know having people who have been doing it for years and having people who have really invested a lot of time in making sure that others do it just as well. And then finally hearing you say, you know, people contact me and say, you know, I want to do that too. That That, that is in truth why I wrote a book about podcasting is right. because this is, this may not always be the medium, but they may have also said the same thing when Marconi first introduced radio, you know, uh, that there would be something else. And inevitably they have been, but radio also is still a medium. Podcasting, I think, will continue to be a medium. Uh, as long as there are microphones and people with voices with something to say, there will be a message. There will be an intent, and there will be programming like this. And so, I'm very excited to see where podcasting is taking us, and that the, uh, you know, that the uh, the torch being carried is in very good hands. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. <laughs> well, guys, this is going to conclude the 100th episode of Mixed Paranormal. <laughs> Thanks very much for listening. And Luke, take us out. Um, skies are blue. <laughs> Have a blue Christmas Everyone joining hands
around the tree. I take back what I said about this show. <laughs> Thank you, guys. And uh, there's more to come next year in 2016 on Conspiranormal. Hey, guys, this is your host from Conspiranormal, Adam Sane. And producer Rob. And what you just heard, that was our roundtable discussion with everybody inside the studio. Right, part one. Part, yep, that was part one of the Conspiranormal 100th episode. And there is going to be a part two coming soon where we just talk to people over Skype. People that, and people that are not in the studio, we're just giving them calls. Obviously, we have people that are out of town that live in, in California and all around the country that we've had on as guests. So we wanted to get them on too. So we didn't want to do like a six or seven hour episode <laughs> magnum opus. So we decided that we're going to split it in two and that's going to be posted probably shortly within the next couple of days of this one being posted. So thank you guys for listening and we'll be back on Conspiracy Normal. Okay, so it's time for a tune. Ah, okay, I got one. So I woke up this morning feeling a little bit haggard. How about you guys? Yeah. Yeah. You ever felt haggard? I did. I feel like you're inside joke, I'm guessing. Now, granted, I haven't got my strap, so I'm having to kind of work this. No, it's fantastic. Come on, Mike, why don't you join in as a singer? Yeah. It's big time, just getting by nine kids and a wife, right? That's good. I'm working on it. it. But I've been a working man, a baby dang near all my life. Try to go back working. As long as my two hands are fit to use. Lord, I drink a little beer in the evening, honey, and I sing a little bit of these working man blues. Though I keep my nose on the grindstone, the baby work hard every day. I might get a little tired on the weekend, honey, but after I draw my pay, gotta go back working. Yeah. Gotta buy my young and a brand new pair of shoes, cause the shoes bring the cool. Yeah. Awesome, man. Long drink a little beer in the evening, baby, and I cry a little bit of these working man blues. Go to pick one. Well, I drink a little bit of evening, baby, and I cry a little bit 
of these. What is it now, baby? Come on. Working, working my own blues. Yeah. <laughs> working a little bit. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.